0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ideaprov, I'm your host Mike Pedersen, um, we have a really kind of interesting topic today, um, it's a little bit out there but I'm really excited to get, to get after it. I'm um, here with Megan that I found through a friend of ours and we had a video chat and really kind of kind of vibed on the same level, I asked her to do an episode and she was really, you know, completely to jump on board. So. Um, I'm excited to see or hear what she has to say. So Megan, how are you? Introduce yourself and uh, how are you doing?
1: Hey Mike, thanks so much for having me. This is super fun. Um, So I am Megan, I'm an education nerd. I really love discussing big ideas. Um, When you told me that you had a podcast that blended ideas and improvisation, I was like, whoa, totally my jam. Um, So I knew that I really wanted to do this with you. but yeah so like my life is mainly in education technology but i spend my spare time in covid world uh sewing face masks and taking my dog for long walks in the wilderness <laughs> to keep myself sane it's awesome
0: long walks with dogs in the wilderness is can't be beat can't be beat i don't have a dog but i think it would be it would be an awesome thing to do it's one of those kind of bucket list items when i get old so i want to i want to bring megan in because she uh she really kind of gets involved with some kind of neat things, so uh, Megan, like, what's been your, your passion, your, your thing that you've really kind of been about over the last little bit?
1: Yeah, um, I'm really excited to share this with you, actually, because it's such a cool project that I'm really stoked to be a part of, but um, my whole shtick in education is all about experiential learning, so giving people the opportunity to learn through experience. And one of the projects that I'm working on, which has been really fun um, and exciting, is a project that I'm doing through my work with uh, Northeastern University and the city of Boston. And we're running a virtual internship program for them, or part of it. So they run an internship program every summer. And because of COVID-19, a lot of their learners or their interns couldn't necessarily complete all of their hours at their location. So some of those hours needed to be supplemented with some kind of virtual programming. So I got to design their virtual program and they're working on some really neat, impactful projects. They're doing project learning for 10 to 15 hours a week. And um, some of the projects that we've come up for them are social impact stuff. So they're working on projects that help improve um, democratic outcomes like getting people to register to vote or looking at social bias in some uh, products that exist in our world and how those can be improved. Um, And the projects themselves that they're working on, they're coming up with, you know, these actual tangible products. So for democratic engagement, they're creating a poster to help certain districts like know where to go to register to vote and how to vote. There's another one that's about pandemic health and wellness. So they're putting together like a playbook for people to, um, you know, survive and be healthy and well during pandemic times, um, which is, you know, feed enough in and of itself. And um, yeah, it just it's it's really cool to be able to work on a project that not only I get to you know insert some experiential learning into the lives of youth that may not have had it before. a lot of these youth have been doing their schoolwork online, but not in the same way in like a check the box or show up to your Zoom meeting. Whereas this has really challenged them to think more critically and, you know, form opinions and come up with cool ideas that they can share with their community. So yeah, it's it's really cool. They actually do their presentations tomorrow. Um, Or sorry, they hand in their projects, their final projects tomorrow, and then they present to um, a whole consortium of You know, faculty at Northeastern and um, folks at City of Boston and their the their their, um, locations that they're working at as well. Their supervisors on Monday in a virtual showcase. So
0: wow, how many how many kids are we talking about, or young adults?
1: Well. Yeah, great question. Um, there were about 130 youth that opted to do this virtual track. There are other virtual tracks that were options. Ours was obviously the best. Um, but yeah, we had 130 youth doing these projects with us, which is, I think, something like 25 or 27 teams total.
0: Wow, that's a lot. Um, now, has, has this happened before? Or is this more of a one-off because of the pandemic i mean is it like a yearly thing a quarterly thing um just based on supply
1: well so they generally every summer they'll do their um internship but every summer generally that internship which is sponsored by the city of boston um, and with community-based organizations within boston um they will go to their internship for 25 hours a week um, and they'll get paid because they go there to do 25 hours of work but because of Covid nineteen, and this summer they actually originally were like, well, we're not going to do internships this summer, and a lot of folks were like, hang on, those internships are super powerful and impactful because you're putting money toward, or you know, putting money into the economy of for these. Youth, And actually, in fact, a lot of there's they do some research around it and a lot of the youth use the money that they make in their internship to pay a household bill. So it's it's impactful to have this program running. So they needed to come up with a way that they could still run the program, but then supplement some of the hours that the students wouldn't or the youth wouldn't be able to do in the office because the office job obviously is not the same. You can't get 25 hours of work out of youth if they're not, you know, helping you out around the office. So we had to supplement those hours with the project.
0: Wonderful. Um, It's really neat to see these types of things kind of, I guess, organically grow um, and to be used for for good. Like this is the stuff that I feel like needs more publicity that people just don't see, don't realize. um, They don't realize, I guess, you know, people and young adults, the next generation is like trying to do good things you know, and they all see them like, yeah. oh, they're all buried in their phones, and you know, they're not communicating with anybody and doesn't know any soft skills and all these kinds of things and blah, 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 You know, uh, try and getting that mindset to, to kind of embrace the, the new generation and how they're going about things is always really interesting to me.
1: Yeah, so. and I think, you know, like, my whole shtick forever in experiential learning is like, that is how you learn those, quote, soft skills or those like interdisciplinary skills. You have to learn them by having experiences. You can't just like read about how to be a good leader. <laughs> that doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> you know. It does so not work. You have to do these real life, you know, experiences and projects in order to build those skills. So yeah, not only are they creating something impactful for their community, but they're also building these skills that they wouldn't necessarily build in a classroom or reading a textbook. Um, so yeah, exactly. I think there's it's it's really cool to me that um, I think there's been a big shift in terms of like the COVID world and how everything has adjusted and a lot of things things are virtual the shift around like how we teach has really started happening and I'm really excited to see that continue to happen um, you know as our world is shaped over the next few months as well
0: yeah it's gonna be huge I mean you coming from the educational background it's I think that whole concept of you know online e-learning the way people learn experiential it's kind of been put in hyperdrive right now like people are going to have to they're figuring it out on the fly i know like my bonus daughter she starts school next monday and all of a sudden she has to go to full online so you have to set up like a little home desk for her and put the pens and paper and and is she gonna have like a tutor or what type of material are you gonna get all the material at once And, and you know parents are just freaking out but at the same time you know, I have a uh, even younger one, an eight month old, and I'm wondering, I, it crossed my mind the other day, I said, will she ever go to a legit school school?
1: You know, like they're saying that this might stay with us for years to come. Yeah, so like, yeah, what is it gonna look like? Yeah,
0: I mean, what's it gonna look like? She won't hit school for another five years. And like, if this thing, you know, kind of goes on or we change the way, she might not ever go to, she might just stay at home in school. So I was like, I mean, it's crazy. It is wild. I need, to, need to think about.
1: Yeah, so, and I think like, I was just going to say like the the change that had to happen between you know when it was declared a pandemic and everything shut down like in that last couple weeks of March there was a huge scramble for everybody to just get get stuff online like I'm putting that in air quotes like you know that's like there's a huge difference between let's shove it online Um, and let's actually design an experience that's really impactful and valuable for people. So that is the shift that I'm talking about where I'm like, it's starting to happen now. They realize that like when they just shoved it online, it wasn't an amazing experience for people. People don't want to sit on a Zoom call for four hours or, you know, a two and a half hour lecture. Like nobody wants to do that, myself included, even like a one hour Zoom call. I'm like, okay, tapped out. I need a beer. Thank you.
0: It's so true. I mean, people thought that you could be able to sit behind a computer, like you sit behind a desk and it just, it just doesn't work that way. And like you get mentally spent after a little while. So um, great, great tidbit um, of information. Uh, is there any way that, let's say maybe the general public could be potentially get involved or, or help with this initiative at all?
1: That's an awesome question. Um, at this point, we're actually looking at bringing that particular kind of project learning experience to other cities that have other, you know, internship programs for youth in the summertime or throughout the year. So that's kind of an initiative that we're undertaking in terms of like taking it a little bit on the roadshow, and, you know, hopefully some other cities will be interested in taking it on. Um, But yeah, I guess if anyone's interested in doing something like that with youth, please get in touch with me, because um, I would love to explore that with you, whether that's through your school, your organization, um, whatever it is, your city, don't care. Like that, this is stuff that really makes me excited and feel like I'm having an impact in what I do. So I'm happy to have those discussions.
0: Wonderful, well, we'll definitely make sure to um, get the information from you and add it into the, uh, the bio or the comments or the description. Um, of the episode below, so that way you guys can get in contact with Megan and um, make some even more powerful change in the community. Great, so um, our crazy topic for today, actually sent uh, Megan quite a few of them, but we want to kind of talk about debt and the economy and how that kind of works and with the age of covid and even before that we're talking about for example emerging economies maybe third world countries or just companies that or not sorry not companies but um, countries that are still growing and heavily developing and could temporarily freezing all debt for either personal or companies in those economies help them grow faster? And if so, how could that happen? So my first initial thought with this was a resounding yes. Um, just because I thought this makes a lot of sense, like if everybody doesn't owe money everywhere, they have more money to impact, to put in the, into their business, they have more impact, uh, more money to feed their families um, and therefore can grow faster. Now, on the flip side of it, you have those that might have a flight risk, right? So they're gonna borrow $10,000 to start a business from a bank, and you'll never hear or see those people again. They'll board a flight to wherever and disappear. It's exaggerated thinking, but I'm sure it will probably be done because you have some unsavory people. Um, But I'm thinking for the average, let's say small business owner, if they didn't have hanging debt of $100,000 for their place or their land or their business to get started, and they deferred that for a period of 24, 48, 72 months, you know, three years, four years, maybe the whole you know country does it. Like, how much money could they potentially make from a GDP level? I thought it was quite a bit. Now, I'm missing some holes here, so I'm looking to you, Megan, to kind of like fill that and <laughs> and, uh, and show me the ropes
1: <laughs> oh god yeah let's just pretend like i'm an economist for a second um definitely not just as like a, a note to the, to the listeners um i i mean I, i'm with you in the fact that i when i first looked at this question uh from before even looking into it at all, I was like, of course, <laughs> that would make a huge difference. Like even to me personally, with someone who is, you know, carrying debt for my, uh, you know, very expensive international master's degree, um, you know, it's like it's that would make a huge difference. But one of the biggest things that came across in my mind, which which actually was um, like a sweeping statement for whether that be personal level, you know, municipal, per, you know, statewide, or federal or countrywide um, is that meeting people's basic needs is more important than repaying debt and that is so that in and of itself is an idea that if you can't meet your basic needs that you should have your debt frozen is i think something that a lot of people have talked about but it's never really been implemented and it was really interesting you know in the time of COVID because um, the G20 actually froze the debt for the poorest countries in the world because they wanted them to have the resources to f- fund the med- medical care that they needed to fund in order to fight the virus. So it's already happening in our, in our world and it's already being, you know, signed off on the line by the, the biggest powerhouse countries in the world. Like, why can't we do this on a, you know, if we're doing it on that large of a scale. Why can't we test this? or do this on a smaller scale and, and see the impact it'll have, you know, even on people in our generation who are carrying a bunch of student loans. Um, <laughs> you know, there's like a whole bunch of stats that I've looked up that I'm going to throw your way eventually, but I'm, yeah. you go ahead. Yeah, no, I think
0: I think you're spot on, especially because you look at the wide variety of things in regards to finances and debt, right? And so here in the United States, there are, they always say, oh, you know, we're not going to, you know, we don't wanna increase the national debt and it's something like $5.7 trillion. Well, like, where are we ever gonna get this money? We're never gonna repay this. Like, what is the point of, of attempting to try and repay this when it's not gonna happen? Like, it's this cyclical thing. Um, it, it's not like any other country or, or is just gonna magically say, we're gonna stop shipping goods, services, and export everything to you until you repay us all our money. Like, it's not gonna happen. Like, the global economy is way more you know, in flux than that, and so this concept of debt kind of it boggles my mind because I think you you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Is if you're in a developing country and you don't have food, water, shelter, whatever, like you don't care that you owe the next guy twenty bucks. Like you're trying to figure out your next meal, and the inability for some, I guess you could say, executives, higher ups, you know, these world economists to. to not see that and to say hey you no, you still owe 20 bucks like it's extremely disconnected um from the humanity portion of it um and to get people to believe in humans is
1: yeah it, a it,
0: different conversation it's
1: so hard because we live in this like very capitalist society and so when we're living in capitalism debt is just a byproduct of that And so, you know, we are sold this idea that if we invest in things, you know, like education or a car or a house by being essentially in debt to do those things, then our economic outcome later in life would be greater. But is that true? Like, I mean, I'm going to be paying off my ridiculous student loan for many years to come and that money every month could actually go to something that could improve my life right now. (laughs) You know, maybe in 10 years it'll feel great, but like for the next 10 years, it's gonna feel kind of (laughs) crappy.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like it feels like you're never going to get out of it. Yeah. And it's like how many other things in your life have you put on hold because of the fact that you have this massive hundreds of dollars that are coming out of your account every month because of the fact that you're quote unquote, air quotes here, to go get an education like you're supposed to get these things to better off you know to make yourself better off um and you know and of course on the other side there's a lot of people that say oh well you don't need an education you don't need to go do those things you know go get some experience and actually just like the episode that i dropped today was about that dynamic about how that could be a little bit better um but i I still think it's out of balance
1: yeah i agree i mean we could we could we could probably talk for like four hours about student loans, um, because that's just like a whole other basket of eggs that I would love to get into. Um, but if anybody's interested in learning a little bit more, there's a great 20-minute um, episode, or 30-minute episode by uh, um, Hassan Minaj. Uh, he does um, The Patriot Act on Netflix, and his he does one on student loans, and it's really interesting. So if anyone wants to dig into that, that's the place to go. But I mean, like, debt in general, like, there's, there's like, what was it, Thir- some stats that I looked at. 39 million U.S. adults have been cr- carrying credit card debt for almost two years, or at least two years, sorry. And another 8 million of them can't recall how long they've been in debt for. And a quarter of them expect to die in debt. Never pay it off. This is this is, this is, of,
0: mine. This is of mine. I mean, because if you're just, you're, I mean, it's what, the second biggest debt or the number one I believe among generation I think it's the millennial generation and generation X is like student or credit cards at the end it's like now part of it I have to I have to say is on the individual right Um, the decisions that people make whether it's to keep up with the Joneses or buy things that they shouldn't buy yeah so there's part of it that's definitely a financial education piece
1: oh i i fully
0: agree with you there yeah there's there's better ways to do it um better ways to go about it however with that being said do i also think that we need the astronomical interest rates on whatever we might take a loan out on
1: well and i think the other thing is like you know there's so many people that are living so close to the edge of poverty you know, it's like one major and especially in the like I'm Canadian, so I don't have this medical bills problem. But if I you know, if, if, if someone in the States were to fall ill, you know, that would easily put them in the deep end of debt that they could never recover from. And with so many people living close to the edge like that, and now we're in a pandemic, you know, like plus credit card rates being high, like it just you know, it doesn't matter that unemployment's improving. It's there's still so many people who can't meet their basic needs with the money that they're making. So then they go into debt in order to try and meet their basic needs. And then it's just this cyclical problem where we just have more and more debt. Don't even get me started on this whole like, um, national or like federal debt. I, I don't understand how you can <laughs> run an economy. That's trillions of dollars in debt. Like is that money's not real. Come
0: on. Yeah, it's just not real. And then when it, when it's not really, Hey, you know what? Let's just print some more. Everything will be fine. Right, you know? and then like they talking about like inflation and it's like, I get it, but I feel like a lot of it can be solved with like common sense. Now, I'm sure there's a billionaire somewhere that's like, oh, blah blah blah. You know, radicals just don't want to pay anybody. And I'm like, but like you talked about, if you if you don't have those basic needs met, it's not going to work. And then you combine that with the fact that over the past, I think it's 70 years, the top 1% of Americans had have made 240% more than they did 70 years ago while the average american now is strapped with credit card debt and 70 percent of them live paycheck to paycheck and haven't gotten any significant raise for any length of time and it's kind of like how do we get out so in freezing this debt like my division my, from my head went to if i'm a family of four you know which, which Debts? Do we want to look at freezing and probably making the most impactful? I would assume probably rents and mortgages because that's the biggest chunk. But will that have a trickle effect throughout the rest of the economy in a negative way?
1: Well, and that's the really interesting thing that we're seeing that's happening right now in terms of coronavirus and COVID-19 response is that um, a lot of people were calling for a rent freeze. Um, And I mean, I, I agreed with it. But then thinking about it, it's like, okay, well, if those people can't pay their rent, then their landlords can't pay their mortgage and then when mortgage rate when mortgages can't be paid guess what happens a huge recession (laughs) you know that happened in 2008 like that's what that's what happened people didn't pay their mortgages people were lent a whole bunch of like really crappy debt and you know this whole house of cards fell down so there's just i mean that's that's my like i'm it's going to sound so socialist, but like, that's my huge problem with our capitalist society is that it's all built on this house of cards of, you know, people re- relying on the lowest levels of people to support them. So, you know, these major corporations reply, re- reply, rely on the labor of really low wage workers in order to run their trillion dollar billion dollar business. Um, and it's just at the detriment of those people at the bottom of the ladder, um, because they are making, you know, scraping by with their minimum wage, and their hard labor and effort gives these owners, like you said, the extra two hundred and fifty percent in the past seventy years because of all this cheap labor. And you know, if folks can't, if folks can't meet their basic needs with minimum wage, there's a problem there. Like. That's a fundamental problem in the way that we have run our economy and our country. Um, you know, there's, I mean, I haven't done a lot of research into universal basic income, but I think it's a big thing that we should look at because if in, in Canada, we have something called, um, I call it CERB, but apparently it's CERB, C-E-R-B, which is the COVID Emergency Relief um, Benefit. And it was set up by our government to give Canadians $2,000 a month um, every month for, I think it was six months. So it was like, you're covered, you're cool. We're gonna give you, you know, essentially a universal basic income. We're gonna give you a benefit every month um, if, you, if you're furloughed or your job is lost due to COVID-19. And my husband was furloughed. So for us, it was like, great, we have this, we can rely on. But the problem is that that universal basic, or that, that curb payment or CERB payment was higher for some people than their actual minimum wage job. You know, like,
0: wow. why,
1: why is that a thing that we're doing? Like, why, you know,
0: that, I can see that being an issue. Like, why would
1: people want to go back to work if their benefit payment is higher? You know, like that makes no sense. So yeah, it just, I'm, I'm really interested in how basic needs are better met. And I'm really interested in how that can impact debt overall, because I think a lot of debt comes down to people meeting basic needs. I don't think a lot of debt is related to, you know, overspending. I think there's a little bit. I think you're right in that like there's a lot in terms of like financial education. There's a huge piece there in terms of like how we can better set up our curriculums to teach students how to manage money because that was never something we ever had in school I really wish we had because I got cornered in a grocery store when I was 18 and they're like you can have a grocery store credit card I was like amazing they're like here's a limit of a thousand dollars I was like cha-ching um yeah and then like you know spent two years paying that off on my minimum wage job um you know so it's like there's a little bit there in terms of education for sure
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think a good part of education, because I remember my first year of college, there was a guy that went around with a clipboard in the dorm and he was like, hey, do you want to open like a CityBank yeah. account? Like a thousand bucks and you get a free t-shirt. And I'm like, free t-shirt? What? <laughs> like, yeah, hey, give me a free t-shirt. I still have the shirt. It just says like college on the front. Like, it's fantastic. But of course, I-, I was lucky enough to, my dad kind of schooled me on some financial education um, stuff. And he was like, this is how credit works. And he-, he taught me all about that stuff. So literally probably like a week after um, I went ahead and canceled the card. And I was like, I- I'm never going to use this. I, I don't want to use it at 20% APR or whatever the case. And I never did. I just got the free t-shirt. For- great. But I'm also thinking about from just a quick jump back nugget on the financial education is like in high school we had a class called senior survival that was supposed to teach you like the basics of you know how to cook for yourself and how to how to do these kinds of things and what, what voting is like and um, I remember one of the things was this is you know I'm uh, dating myself here but early 2000s and so one of the things was hey how to balance a checkbook
1: oh my god and, like Amazing. Who still has a check? Weirdly, I still do. But yeah, I know. Yeah. Okay. Never Stay balanced corrected. it. Never balanced it. I don't know what
0: that means. Yeah. yeah good. And um but I think that the fundamental, you know, piece here is, and you touched on one of the things and how it rolls up to the big uh, banks, so this is a more theoretical uh, edge to it, is do, do we think that those large bank executives legitimately understand that these low-level income workers that are working paycheck to paycheck, do they think that that's the best model? Do they not care if that's the best model? Or are they just saying, hey, this, this has worked so far, and we've made us X amount of money? Um, I mean, because in my mind it would it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to try and make your living off of the backs of people that are so close to the end.
1: Oh, but that exists so prevalently in our society. as it well. I know, I guess it's capitalism. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, if you look at, um, if you look at like those, like uh, what are those stores that you like go to and like you get a little loan before pay, payday loan stores and stuff like that, that is their model. They will drag you for every last cent for the next 10 years if they can. So, yeah, I mean, I would love to live in a world in which uh, people don't make money off the back of the lowest workers in our society, but unfortunately that's exactly what happens and that's exactly how our society is built and has been built forever. You know, like America was built off the back of slaves. Like this is like, you know, how does this, how do we move away from that model is what I'm trying to say. You know, like there's so much we can, we can, we can do with the the things that we have at our disposal, and I think that you know. I even think about like my the the debt that I carry, which is like student loan debt, a little bit of credit card debt, and like my car payment. And like because I had a car payment last year, we bought a car when we moved back to Canada, and like within a week, within like one day of my first car payment, that like took came out of my account. The bank that I did my car loan through called me and was like, Hey, you're in good standing. Do you want a line of credit? And I was like, Are you totally nuts? Like, I already owe you a few, many thousands of dollars for my car. Like, the last thing I need is to be in more debt. So it's like almost their, you know, an MO to like go and, you know, get people in more debt. It's like, man, this is not the only way you guys can make money.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's like, there's gotta be a better way, right? Um, And maybe it's, maybe that's not the small guy, maybe it's playing off the medium guy or or the high guy. But you know, it kind of also does rub you the wrong way because you hear about these mega people who rip people off, like the Bernie Madoffs or whatever with the Ponzi schemes and just, and they run through it. And and of course there's a human component that just, you know, partially bad people. but at the same time, I also have to think if there's if you have that many people on the bad side of things, you have to have some people on the good side of things, right? Some people that are fighting it. And how is it that those loopholes are never closed? Like those things are never changed?
1: Uh, that would be because- um, I mean, we've been
0: doing this, like you said, since the time yeah. of slavery. We're talking a couple yeah. hundred years here. Uh, like at some point in time, somebody's got to figure something out that, hey, maybe if we plug this little hole, you know, the offshore bank accounts, These oh people don't pay taxes. Yeah, and but the, these
1: like, people have money to fight that stuff, so they pay lobbyists to go and lobby government to make sure that those holes don't get plugged. That's the, that's the perpetual problem, is that there's these mega rich people that don't pay taxes and corporations that don't pay taxes. So there's a significant amount of money that's missing from the economy because it's not being, or not missing from the economy, but not being like refed back into the economy or through the government. Um, through proper taxation because assets are being hidden or companies get write-offs or whatever it is and so that is a trickle-down effect because then it means that our tax rates need to get higher because the corporations aren't paying their fair share so then the fair share for the people who earn minimum wage is way higher than it probably should be you know in order to meet your basic needs (laughs) Um, (laughs) it's just this like really annoying cyclical thing we have this saying in my household because both my husband and i came from you know middle-class families like we're definitely we weren't weren't well off but we weren't poor enough but you know we're working class so we have this saying that we say is like money makes money so people who are born into wealth or who have significant wealth that allows them to make more wealth because they can afford to invest in things that help them get gain more wealth. So great example is like someone who's, you know, a teenager who's born into a wealthy family. They can afford to go and do an unpaid internship because they can afford to not work.
0: Daddy's going to foot the bill or mommy's going to foot the bill. And,
1: you know, for the rest of us who need to, you know, pay for everything ourselves, um, we don't get that luxury. So then we're already a few steps behind. And so there's this Total disparity between the way that people are able to access and interact with our world and our economy that is like, uh, you know, kind of like not written or like not really acknowledged often. That there's really, it's we live in a class system. <laughs> it's, you know, there are classes, yeah, there's the wealth, super wealthy people and folks that can afford to do stuff, and there's the rest of us who hang out in the debt zone.
0: Yeah. The other ninety-nine percent that kind of hang out, you know, that aren't aren't afforded those luxuries or have to work extremely hard to move up, you know, like a half a class or a quarter of a class into into the next one. Um, and I'm looking at this this debt freezing thing, and I'm thinking, if you look at it from a personal standpoint, so you look at that the family that is of the teenager of one of the one percenters compared to a regular average working American family. What is the level at which, let's say that working families' debt would have to be frozen to ideally make the playing field even?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. The first statement is that I don't think the playing field will ever be even because there's, it was already too different to begin with, but I think You know you touched on this at the beginning when you said like mortgage payments and rent payments those significantly larger monthly payments that need to happen um or even you know student loan payments can be pretty significant for some folks too those kind of payments are the ones that like if you're not I think if you look at the depending on where you live what what percentage of your income goes toward rent or goes toward mortgage or goes toward student loan payments like that's just generally a pretty significant percentage of your income and so you know what would it look like for people to have you know 20 percent of their or 40 percent of their income back for themselves you know how would they invest either in themselves or in their community which is the like the big thing you know we're talking about freezing debt and how that can help economies grow faster. I think that helps especially local economies skyrocket because you know, if, if my, if my renter, my student loan payment was frozen, I would be like, great, we can go and like eat at the local restaurant or like, I can go pick up some stuff from the local bakery or get myself a a coffee at the local coffee shop. You know, I would reinvest in my community because that's, what's important to me but also like you know i'm then afforded the ability to do so it was like one of the like best best moments that i realized when i was like oh my god i can go and get a coffee <laughs> like buy a coffee for myself at like a fancy coffee store and like i don't feel like that means i need to take away from my grocery money this week <laughs> it was a great feeling <laughs> you
0: like yeah, guilt exactly
1: <laughs> It's like, okay, I don't need to feel guilty about
0: this like $4 coffee. This is great, I'm gonna enjoy yeah. it. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I had that same moment you know, a couple of years ago in which I think I went out to get like Chipotle or food or something like that. And I remember after I finished, I had paid on everything, I had ate and I had walked out and I just had a moment when I got back in the car and I thought to myself, I did not even sweat about bringing out my debit card. <laughs>
1: That moment where you're like, is it going to come back as insufficient funds? Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Insufficient funds. No, it didn't even cross my mind. I knew I was getting that meal. I was not going hungry tonight. I felt good, you know. Um, But you're talking about like that 40, 50%. Like that's huge because not only is it, is it, you're talking about local businesses, right? But then we're also talking about that 40, 50% 50 can go towards things that can, be helpful for the family so you're talking about reinvesting in education potentially buying a more permanent you know home um making it equitable to, to live there maybe they need to you know to fix the water to fix the heat or something like that in in the actual home which can make it a better thing and not only is that helping the family but that's also helping another local business to be able to you know put food on their plate and it becomes a domino effect so all of a sudden you've injected an extra 45 50 percent of money into the economy just by freezing it for a little bit of time
1: yeah so what of the things that when all of the coronavirus stuff started or covid19 really started um, i watched this hilarious guy who spits a lot when he talks in this like car in new york hilarious new yorker accent he was just like yelling basically about the fact that instead of continue instead of like freezing mortgage payments and then like having them um you know have to be a massive payment at the end of this because they would they're like talking about freezing mortgage payments for a couple months but then you'd you know after a couple months you got to pay you know three months of mortgage payments like that's crazy no one can do that um so he was saying why don't you just extend the term of the mortgage so like take those two or three months and just chop them on the end so like you know your mortgage term is no longer 25 years it's 25.25 years you know and like that that actually is not a huge impact the bank is still going to get their money it's just going to take a little bit longer you know which means you might pay a little bit more interest over time but the reality is that in that time those three months that you really need that income that extra 40 50 percent or whatever it is of your paycheck you can use that to meet your basic needs and invest in the local economy or do things like, you know, fix your heating in your house because that's important. I might need that when you live up north. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that like the way I kind of envision, because we keep talking about dominoes. So the way I'm kind of envisioning this is like, there's these like massive dominoes that are like, you know, Federal Reserve and like the, the big banks and stuff like that. And then there's like the medium sized dominoes, which are like the people who like are landlords or, or, you know, homeowners or whatever. And then there's like literally millions of these tiny dominoes. And like, if you screw over the million tiny dominoes, guess what? They knock over all of those medium and then all of the large dominoes. But if you don't screw those over and you just like, you know, tell those medium and large dominoes to just chill for a little bit, not much happens. Like maybe those upper dominoes rock a little bit, but they're still okay because there's still so much more that they can do with what's at their fingertips in terms of resources than those little tiny million dollars, like million dominoes that don't really have much leeway. And like that is, that's like that's the like that was the depressing part reading these stats. It was like, gosh, so many people are living on the edge constantly, and you know. 25 people 25 percent of people expecting to die in debt like that is wild to me
0: that's that's absurd that is absurd
1: absurd. you know like there's (laughs) that's i just (laughs) i want people to be given the opportunity to not only get themselves out of debt but get themselves you know even like my sister just paid off a bunch of her debt And she sent me a message and was like, a screenshot of like the zeros. And she was like, these are the greatest zeros of all time. You know, just so excited to just be at zero. Like, imagine we could, I mean, you know, screw freezing debt. Let's just forgive a bunch of debt. Let's get people to zero.
0: And that's that's the other part, that's the other side of it that I really feel could be a huge opportunity to be able to invest in it. So you have to think, right? Um, I said this on a a different episode. One of my uncles went down to the Virgin Islands and because he was a doctor, they forgave his debt after like three years. And I said, why does it, why? Yeah, it's phenomenal. And I'm like, why don't we do this for other social or or public service? Teachers. Right? So, yeah. teachers nurses. police officers yeah. nurses paramedics like and create a little bit of a bracket system because if you want good quality people to go into these professions like reward them for doing so like imagine if all the police officers and, and, and the teachers and stuff that can go in there and say hey listen you go to school you get your educate you know your, your masters or whatever and you go teach for five years or you go teach for seven years or whatever and all of it's forgiven you know how many te- how many people are gonna go into teaching? Like, it's going to be a lot. Like, you're going to be able to come out. You're going to be able to make it. You now, teachers should get paid a whole lot more. I think a lot of people, you know, would probably agree with that. That's a different conversation. Um, but to be able to set up all those people for a much improved, better life is going to be, is, is going to make a world of difference, not only for that direct generation, but for generations to come. And then to touch on your, your point about the large dominoes. Like those large dominoes, like the huge banks, the AIGs, HSB or HSBC and stuff like that. Like they're dealing in the billions, in the trillions. A couple hundred bucks here or there isn't rocking the boat. Even even if it's from tens of thousands of people, it's not going to make a difference for them. It's just going to mean that their balance sheet is a little bit lower. But I'm, I'm failing to see how that is going to be a negative for anybody but maybe a couple of bank shareholders.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say that's that's where this whole like capitalist society comes back to it, is that, you know, um, all of like, if you need to explain to a boardroom of shareholders why it is that their dividends are not gonna be where they need to be this year, and they're basically not gonna make money, that's the problem because these are big dominoes and they want to be able to deliver to their shareholders because then, It's like this, like you said, like domino effect. If they don't deliver the dividends that they need to, the value of their company declines and people don't buy shares in their company and, 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 and And there's like this massive trickle on effect. So I mean, I'm, I'm at this point where I'm like, do, is there a way that there isn't a domino situation? Like, is there a way in which, you know, I really love the, that there's some degrees that get their debt forgiven. Why? Firstly, I mean, wh- why is why is education so expensive? Is my first question. But secondly,
0: three hundred dollars for a textbook like, are you, that like, isn't even I, used. I, I won't get started on that I one. Got a whole bookshelf
1: of them behind you. Like I, you know, I haven't opened them. <laughs> never did. Anyway, um, but the other question is why is it that there are a significant amount of jobs that people go to, you know, professional professions that people go to school for and study to be, things like teachers and nurses, that their um, entry level salary is so low that they couldn't, they're the kind of people who are almost on the edge of bankruptcy because they're living paycheck to paycheck because they're paying off a massive student loan and not making very much money. So it's like, how do we value, why is it that lawyers get paid so much money and teachers don't? you know lawyers can pay off their their student debt really quickly because they make so much money teachers can't like why do we value some people more i mean now we're going to get really political but like why do we value some people more than others and some professions more than others and some you know
0: i, I, th- I think you're on i think you're on the right track like and the first thing, you know, the cynical part of me says we value these professions, i.e., the, the lawyers and, and the rest of them, because of the fact that they're able to get those one percenters out of jail. <laughs> that's
1: probably so true. <laughs> and I, I mean, fine. and they're also mostly white men, right? So that's yes. also
0: a thing. Um. Yeah, it's also a thing. As attorneys, hey, I can get you out of jail, so pay me a whole bunch of money. And I can figure out a way for you to move your money around and do all those kinds of things. Same thing with the financial planners and the, and the financials, whatever. I think there's a, like you were talking about with the capitalistic you know, kind of society, It's there's a propensity to, I need it now, and to not necessarily look for the future um, with things. And I think that's where that, that line of, of demarcation kind of is. You know, we value lawyers because they can protect us from what's happening now instead of paying teachers who are going to invest in the knowledge and education for our children and the next generation that could potentially take care of me when I'm 60 years old. I don't want to have to worry about that. Like, it's gone. I don't know if I'm going to live that long, um, whatever the case is, and that has always kind of boggled my mind. because. Like, why don't we want to take care of the next generation? Because when you're 80 years old, that next generation is going to take care of you.
1: Yeah, I fully agree with you on this. This is, I though so I often think about this, and I often draw the connection between that short-term sighted or short-sighted view um, to the way that we run politics. You know, people hold office for four years. So why would we look much further than that? <laughs> if an administration is going to change funding's going to change you know laws are going to change there'll be stupid executive orders like you know there's things that we can't rely on in four years time so i can understand why we're short-sighted i hate it because i want us to be long-term and i want us to think about you know what the impact of something like a debt freeze for a year even could look like. Like my husband's from the Netherlands and he just like, (laughs) was like, hey, a student loan, which I pay zero interest on, um, I can't pay for a year. And they're like, no problem. You could freeze your student loan debt for an entire year up to six times. And you also pay zero interest. Like what the freedom that that gives him is incredible. What is what is it off the back of that government? Not much, because you know what are they making on his you know thirty thousand euro loan? Not a whole lot, you know. If they were to charge him interest, it wouldn't be a whole lot. So for them, it's you know that's giving back to their citizens to allow them to have the income to then go and invest it in their economy. So like yes, we know that this works, and we know that it works long term.
0: Yeah, and it's like if if. If you're doing these things now, right, and let's say, take your husband as an example, if that's the case and he's able to defer that for a year, right, if there's no interest, there's no anything, it's not like that entity that he owes to isn't going to be around in 20 years, isn't be around 10 years, even around five years. It's like they're not going anywhere. You're going to get your money, whether it's today or tomorrow. And for whomever is deferring now, there's somebody that's still paying. And maybe there's somebody that's coming off to deferment that's still going, that is going to start paying again. So I agree with you in the fact that oftentimes the legislation and the political system forces us to be short-sighted. And oftentimes I've looked at it in a different perspective because I, I think there needs to be some limits on how long you can stay in office for some of these things. It's just, you shouldn't be able to have a job like locked in when you're 40 and Never have to worry about ever losing it until you're 85 and retire. Like that's, it's backwards. You know, like everybody else has to worry about that, but you. Anyway, sidebar. Um, that's like shorten those things up, and I, I think it's going to force people to 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 automatically kind of flip the world a little bit and say, hey, like I'm going to have to think about things differently because I know. I can't just stall out for, like you said, for four years, knowing that something's gonna change.
1: I mean, every, if everyone's having, you know, if the majority of people are living paycheck to paycheck, then that, that we should have the same kind of, you know, what is it, intensity or like, I don't know, speed around like how we think about things. Like, let's try stuff out and let's try stuff out quickly. Um, let's not try and try something out and see what happens in four years time uh let's try it now and and test it you know i think there's there's a lot to be said in the way that we our governments can actually support the people that are within them um and i think that there's a lot that they do to support citizens but i think there's a lot more that they do to support corporations um and yeah i I think i'm with you in that i i almost feel like that that I think you were saying before, like, that's backwards. Like, let's think about people first um, because they impact the corporations and they buy from the corporations. They work for the corporations. So, you know, if we can booster them first, that'll have a flow on effect.
0: I just think it's it's so it's different because of the fact that if I don't know, I feel personally that if you were to just take a step back for a moment, and say, hey, listen, let me give these little guys a break, let me give these little dominoes a break for a minute, let them catch their breath, let them get their feet underneath them, that you're going to make the money back double, triple fold in a year, two years, three years. They're going to go out, they're going to buy, they're going to go out and they're going to you know, reinvest in the economy, they're going to have way more money. You know, they're going to invest in themselves in education and come out with better services and stuff like that. That's going to help bolster the economy in the future. And so, I get it. It's it's this constant trade-off of a bird in the hand versus two in the bush, right? Like, they might do this or they might just kind of sit on it and stockpile and save. Oh, yep. Okay, that's a risk that you might take, but that $200 a month, is that really killing you, Mr. Big Bank? I I don't think so. I I think you'll be just fine. so i also want to touch on um like we got to the forgiving of the civil servants, um, and i was thinking about it when you said it but blending that with the income of people on a on a universal level does that i guess how am i trying to word this does that make the concept of freezing the debt null and void if we give people that basic income? Or, or do you think it could be done in conjunction together?
1: Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a really interesting question. I think there's, yeah, I think because we've been living in this society without a universal basic income and for so long, we would kind of need a blend of it in order to move forward. Um, you know, but the thing about Like debt, like lending money is never the answer. Like for for any for for banks for anyone because like the especially now the risk levels are super high. Like why would anybody want to lend anyone money in this time? Like it's so uncertain. Um, And because we're in this moment of like economic instability, and that risk is really high. We know that if people can't, like, if people don't have the money to pay their bills, to, you know, pay their rent, then it's just a, a cascading event, like a series of events. Like, there will be inability to pay rent, which means landlords don't get paid, which means mortgages don't happen. And, <laughs> you know, that leads to a whole bunch of credit defaults, a whole bunch of, you know, like, house foreclosures and seizures of assets. And then we end up in this moment, like we did in two thousand eight, where all those big banks who, you know, supposedly were supposed to be getting all this money from all these people who they had just like lended terrible credit to, end up getting a massive bailout. And then, but and but this is the huge problem: is like because there is no like baseline or universal basic income for folks, they default on their loans, and then. Banks uh, can't, you know, say that they're in trouble and they get a big bailout. But who pays for the bailout? It's the people <laughs> through their taxes. So I'm I failed to see how, like, our whole idea around like money, you know, supporting economies, is really being supported by these big bank or like the big dominoes. Because in the end, the money is still coming from those million tiny dominoes. So like, why don't we just set them up for success in the first place?
0: It's a point that I've thought about myself and kind of gone round and round in circles with. And in in the fact that with it, speaking directly to the bailout, it really just kind of doesn't make sense. Like you're talking about the bank's not gonna have money. I find it hard to believe that the million billion dollar bank is going to run out of money. It's, it's not. What's going to happen is the bank isn't going to make a profit this year. And ooh, I'm sorry, but let me whip out my little tiny violin um, <laughs> for the mega bank because they're not gonna make a trillion dollar profit. Like every other business has to deal with this, right? The mom and pop store, the bakery and stuff like that. Hey, if I don't turn a profit, I might go on. So why? Are we making it so that way the bank is immune to this? Like, okay, bank, you don't make a profit this year. That's fine. Listen, what happens if the bank goes under? A whole bunch of people get to keep their homes. Like, I, I don't, I don't see that as a bad thing. Now, of course, I might not be a shareholder. That's a different um, thing. So, I, they don't report <laughs> to me.
1: But like, but who, who in who in those million tiny dominoes is a shareholder, right? Like. They're not like it's it's the people who already have a bunch of money that are shareholders. So I think, you know, we want to try and preserve the integrity of our economy, even though we don't like love the way that it works. We're still trying to preserve the integrity of it. So I think the way that I look at it is that if we I think we need two things. I think we need like a, a debt freeze for a certain period of time that allows us to Allows folks to get on their feet. Allows folks to, you know, make smart decisions with money rather than feel like they're in crisis mode. Um, and I also think that we need to really investigate universal basic income because often a lot of the work that we do as a you know country as. the the way that we support things is just a lot of stop gaps and band-aids. It's like, oh, there's a problem in our financial sector. So like, here's a bailout. Oh, there's a problem over here. We're going to slap a band-aid on that. Um, And we're not, you know, thinking the long term. We're not thinking about the long game. It could, you know, it could take a couple of years. It could take a couple of decades. But um, I think really like we're trying to find a management strategy that involves that that really looks at everybody's well-being rather than it being the you know corporation's well-being it's it's about people and and that is so often missed because even as a you know a a person who accesses financial services for debt i'm likely not a person to them i'm a number you know i'm a an account number, I'm a client number, I'm, you know, the total amount of money I'm in debt to them number, um, and I, or I'm the total amount of interest I'll pay on that number. Um, and we kind of forget the human side of it and the impact that it has on the humans that are involved in these decisions. So I do think that there's like a significant human side to how these need to be approached. and like the impact on a human level rather than an economic level that we need to consider.
0: That economic level, you know, from that human side is a big portion of it. Um, But I'd be remiss if if this one just kind of came across my head and it's a little bit radical, it's a little bit out there. And I think we can both agree that, you know, we're probably people are going to listen to this and like, oh, radical socialists over here on the left hand side and yeah, take it what you will. But um, so when we talked about those big dominoes, you have the big ones of the banks, the medium ones, which is landlords and some people in the middle, and you have those little dominoes which are all the little people going paycheck to paycheck. So with regards to that, if all of those little dominoes, let's say, didn't pay their rent or didn't pay their mortgage for three months, four months, what do you think would happen? It's like... It's like when when you're in class as a student, right? If one student acts up, yeah, you can send them to the principal's office. If all the students act up, what are you gonna do? You're gonna send them all out of class? You're gonna foreclose on everybody's house?
1: (laughs) Right, because then who's gonna buy those foreclosed houses? Yeah,
0: the bank's just gonna have (laughs) 330 million houses with nobody to live in. them. Like, like, let's let's really make this um, a thing, but I mean, it's a really legitimate question, because it it would almost be flipping the paradigm on top of its head, and kind of saying, hey, kind of almost taking back the control, um, in a sense, and and forcing the big banks to say, hey, no, you have to work with us, because if we all stand united, it's almost like a, maybe a housing strike? Do you think that's even possible?
1: well it's interesting because there were some there's i mean there still are some folks that are protesting for a rent strike um because they they are saying like we can't actually afford to live if we are required to pay rent in a time in which we are not making income so i mean the it's hard because it's there's because of the way that our society is set up, there is a significant amount of dominoes that are in place. So if people, if a, a lot of people don't pay rent for a significant long amount of time, I think that there's you know, obviously a big problem because then landlords can't pay their mortgage. However, I'm not convinced that a short-term freeze won't in the long-term make a huge impact. Like if I think about it, you know, there's always isn't there something that it's like age age old thing that people are like, you need to have three months of income saved. It's like nobody has that. Come on. Are you are you a, are you a working class adult? Cool. You definitely don't have three months of income. Definitely saved, not. But thanks for that, <laughs> rich people, um, <laughs>
0: top ten but, financial tips. Like, come on.
1: Yeah, exactly. But I mean, OK, the people who can afford to have three months rent saved are people who own massive buildings right or three months uh, income saved like they probably can afford to take the hit for three months but the people who live in that building cannot because they can't meet their basic needs without that extra money so it's about i mean this is going to sound again super socialist totally left-wing but um it's it's about like you know spreading the impact so a lot of the time when these massive you know, you know, this in this case, it's a pandemic. Previously, it was a recession. But when these things hit, they impact the working class economy the most. Because when recessions hit, companies shrink, people get laid off or fired or whatever. Um, and then people are without work, unemployment rises, and it's that, that working class that's impacted. So I think freezing debt, for the like, people like the working class actually spreads that impact so that it's not just the lower tier folks, it's actually the middle tier that can sustain that a little longer. And so if we, can, if we can figure out a way to make that impact as minimal as possible on the bottom rung and spread it across the lower rungs or the higher rungs of that ladder, then it's a, bet- it's a better situation for everybody. However, as we've said a bunch of times already, in this capitalist world, that's not what they wanna do. The easiest thing is to impact that lower level rather than spread that impact across. So it's much easier to be like, oh yeah, we're gonna, in order to save save money within our company, we're gonna fire 500 people rather than say, actually, we're going to uh, furlough a couple of execs and we're gonna cut expenses on the executive team or guess what? Your dividends are going to be 50% less this year. That's a much more difficult conversation than having, you know, a whole bunch of people laid off. So I think that there's, I mean, I often kind of, (laughs) I often capitalism to me is like being selfish. So like it's, it's, it's selfish to be, like it feels like you have to be selfish to live in this capitalist world. But um, the the selfishness around impact is really interesting because as much as possible, those larger, larger corporations, those people who have more want to push that impact off of them because they want to retain the wealth that they have. And the more that they try and retain the wealth, actually, the more wealth that they make, like over the past few months, those larger corporations have made the most amount of money which is insane to me because the people who are on the front lines risking their lives are these working class folks. So that disparity is already humongous. You know, people who are in the working class are already disproportionately, um, being infected with COVID-19. So the impact is just continually on that bottom level. So that's what I want to do. I want to spread the impact across the whole organization, uh, you know, across everybody, including shareholders, um, even though that's uncomfortable, because like we said before, money begets more money. So those folks who are in that top level of the, I think of it as like a little ladder, those folks who are the big domos or on the higher parts of the, of the ladder. It's actually not a huge impact on their life to lose a little bit. They'll still have a super high level of living.
0: Super high level of living, and like you, like you just spoke about, the ability for those, I guess those high, those high-ranking people, those people in the executive boardroom, to be able to withstand a uh, a month or two or, or or a furlough is going to be much higher. They're going to be able to come back. They're going to be fine. You know, the people at the bottom is where they're going to have the difficulty. And it it would always kind of make sense to me, too, and I I never understood why this was, is having, if you're a company and you have to make that decision to furlough people, to let people go, to have layoffs, restructurings, whatever you want to call it, why is it, why do you want to delay and increase the pain by doing it with the bottom rung of people, which you have to do it to 60, 70 people? instead of doing it to four or five VPs, or a president, or a couple of directors. Like, why do you want to have that tough conversation 70 times versus three or versus four?
1: <laughs> well, it's because the VP hired the management consulting company That's to tell true. them who to fire and tell them true. not yeah, to do it. Yeah, you can do everybody yeah. but
0: me. Um,
1: yeah. Oh, you can look for yeah. You can look for holes in the government, in the organization of this company. Yeah, yeah. But like, not
0: not at, at this office. level. Not at this level. <laughs> you know, it's, and I think part of it has to deal yeah. with the position and the job and the functions. But let's face it. Once you, it, it seems like once you get higher up, the less contributing or creating you're actually doing. You're do, you're making the decisions, right? So, um, and that kind of brings me to another one. with those execs, the the concept of the golden parachute, the the ability to when you get you know you leave a company or or whatever and you're gonna walk away as your severance package with like 26 million dollars like i like
1: oh yeah this this the ceo of exactly. we work for example
0: like we're we're done we no longer need you but we're gonna cut you a check and, and walk away like those are the type of decisions that i really have to question where the motivation lies because if I'm a CEO and I have to do that, or, or I'm, I'm, I'm maybe removing another top linking executive, I'll take that 26 million and give it to the other people in the, in the company and say, hey, listen, if we got this money to do this, like, let's give it to this guy. Like, it's not gonna benefit us. Like Let's reinvest in what we're doing. Give everybody you know, $1,500 for a Christmas break or a Christmas bonus or whatever the case may be, or just a bonus for no reason. Um, instead of giving it to this person, like where's the benefit there for for doing that?
1: Yeah, so I think that this comes comes down to the like short-term versus long-term impact, where um, the short-term impact of firing a bunch of people is immediate in that you have, you know, significantly less salary that you need to pay. The long-term impact in terms of our economy is that there's, you know, 60 or 70 people that are without income. Then they're now drawing on federal support or state support to get their employment, you know, employment insurance income. Um, I forget what you guys call it in the states. We call it employment insurance. Um, I
0: think it's just unemployment. 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 Yeah.
1: So you know, they the the decisions that they made for their life. Maybe they took out a car loan to buy a car. You know, the decisions that they made for their life are suddenly in the balance because they've lost their job. And so that flow on effect is actually pretty significant because there's 70 people that have impact from this decision. Whereas like you were saying before, you just fire a couple of execs and like the impact is not humongous for them. And the <laughs> there's nothing that bothers me more than looking at this disparity between pay in organizations. like between the bottom-level worker and the CEO, for example. Um, and that's also an interesting thing to look at because then there's some CEOs who are like, oh, I have a $1 salary. It's like, yeah, but like you could get millions of dollars in bonuses and expenses and shares, so You're not
0: hurting, stop.
1: <laughs> yeah, like, not it. shut it. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's like the spread of impact in terms of like, the people that it impacts but then there's also the spread of impact in terms of the length of time so the length of you touched on this before the length of time for people in those higher level positions to recover is much shorter than it would be for someone in those lower positions to recover from you know those we said this at the beginning you could have a medical bill that could ruin you financially and i think it's the same thing you know if you suddenly lose your your income you know that could ruin you financially. You could you could potentially not recover from that, and so I mean, I it's it's about being fair. Right? It's, yeah, like, it's about being fair.
0: It's it's about being honest. It's about being true. It's about making I guess what you could say the common sense decision, right? And to play devil's advocate, there's there's people that are going to be on the other side that say, hey, well, that person, that executive, you know, worked themselves up into that particular position. They earned their stripes. You know, they they did all those kinds of things. And it's like, okay, I get that. Um, However, the amount of opportunities afforded to you being at that position is drastically more than the person that's gonna be at that bottom run. So a medical bill isn't going to probably break you. You know, um, missing a a, a mortgage payment, or not having your salary for a month isn't going to break you. It's not gonna make make sure that you miss a mortgage payment. Um, And not only to mention, but you're also talking about the the network and the impact that you have with those people. So, you know, you have the ability to find jobs faster, you know, because you're running in a different level, you're running at a different at a different ladder rung, if you will, because you could just reach out to, you know, hell, I used to work with him, such and such and such, you know, and jump over into another executive vice president role or another CEO role or whatever the case may be, and they just, and they just stay at that level non-stop without ever kind of doing it and you know to kind of pivot the point you know one of the things that you kind of you touched on was you know the layoffs and the furloughs going back to that and the amount of time that it takes so not just the financial impact of it but the i guess societal impact of it like why do we consistently think that restructuring laying all these people off and then returning and trying to rehire them is going to be the best option like it seems a little backwards and we're wasting a lot of time if we're one going to rehire them um, and two maybe worried about them leaving um, but it just seems a little antiquated and you would think over time that there's got to be a better solution for this
1: yeah i think that's a really good point and you know it's one of the things that it, time is time is many So for companies to, you know, fire or or lay off or furlough people to, you know, conserve funds at that particular time. In the future, as they hopefully grow again, as the economy improves or as their position improves, they then need to go through the process of finding, hiring, or rehiring the same folks again, which is like a whole lot of extra time and money (laughs) that they need to go through. So, I mean, like the... It leaves those people in this just uncertain like everything's already uncertain enough let's support people the best that we can i don't know i don't know i i yeah
0: (laughs) and i think i think you're i think you're right um in that there's there's a better way to do it um and i I think I might have talked about it in another episode, but I read an article about a year or so ago, and it was about this company in New Zealand who their entire company is built on contracts. So nobody's a full-time employee, everybody's a contractor, regardless of whether you're there, you just renegotiate your contract on a yearly basis or a two-year con, so you don't have to worry about it. And so 60 days prior, you just have a meeting with HR, everybody knows it, and they said to decide whether you're going to renegotiate your contract and you're going to stay with the company, or you will, um, they'll work on, hey, your position is being eliminated, whatever the case may be, and you have the um, ability, and they'll provide exiting services for you, and find you a different job somewhere else. And I thought it was a really interesting concept and a take on it, because of the fact that life is fluid. And how you feel this year is going to be different than how you feel a year from now. Um, and apparently, they did that. They implemented that, and then also implemented a four-day work week. And the people absolutely loved it. They went over the moon, and production increased by like 80%. And people, they asked them specifically about the termination and, you know, furloughing and leaving and all that kind of stuff. And they said the number one detractor for them that they had an issue with. Was the uncertainty? They didn't mind if they were going to be let go. They didn't mind if they were going to be fired. They just didn't want to be uncertain. They just wanted to have a sense of certainty in what their future would hold. And so I look at that and I feel like that's a missing component: is to just be truthful and honest with the people that are in your realm or scope, and just say, "Hey, this is this is how we're going to operate. This is how we're going to. This is how we're going to go." It's going to affect you. We're sorry. We're going to help you out and and move on. It's okay.
1: Yeah. I like the idea of um, supporting services to help them find their next role. That's really impactful. I think that that's a, that's a human touch that's often missing, particularly when people leave jobs or are fired or furloughed or whatever it is, it's just like, bye. <laughs> Guess what? Your benefits <laughs> yeah. are done now. So see you. <laughs>
0: Yes, see you today. Will be your last yeah. day. Thanks. Your you're
1: like, uh crap. Um. Yeah. So, I, 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 I'm hesitant around the idea of like contract work because I think that there's a time and a place for contract work, and I think that there's um a lot that a company can do for someone by making them a full-time employee and not a contractor. Um, particularly if I'm thinking about the economy and things like buying a home or whatever, like. You know, you, there's a certain amount of stability that you need to prove in order to get credit. Back full circle, back to credit um, and debt. <laughs> so yeah, so if you if you want to get if you want to get some credit or get yourself into some debt, you need to have a lot of security around that because um, no one will loan you anything if you're a risky lendee. So yeah, I mean, oh, I feel like we're just coming around full circle to so this whole like. Should we freeze debt and both of us are like hell yeah
0: <laughs> yeah I think I think you hit it. I think he had on you know the nail on the head and to kind of like wrap it up and and summarize I'm gonna run down the kind of the points that we have and then we'll just see if we missed anything right so one of the things that we need to do is um, start to look at basic needs is more important than repaying debt because I think if if we don't come, we're not comfortable with that fact, it's going to be very difficult to execute past that. Um, Number two, evaluate some universal basic income so that way you can give people a sense of security, a sense of stability, um, and a way to make the ends meet, which will then afford them an opportunity to reinvest in the community on a consistent basis and therefore in turn keeping the economy strong. Um, point number three is look at debt forgiveness for a couple of um, industries, so namely public servants. So you're talking firemen, police, people, um, nurses, teachers, um, anything of that nature that would be helpful um, in forgiving their debt over. After they put in, let's say five years, five to seven years, um, depending on their scale, forgive their their you know student loan debts or whatever they use to incur those debts to be able to get that education. And point number four was want to find a way to freeze the debt for a period of time. So let's say six months. Um, this could be in the age of COVID or not, potentially in developing economies as well in other countries and be able to spread that impact more evenly throughout all, throughout all the ranks of society. So we're talking the high big dominoes, the big banks, the middle ones and the landlords and the low income paycheck to paycheck people. Um, and then we just wanna look at maybe a, a different way to interact with employees when it comes time that the companies need to reassess their talent pool and employees. Did I miss anything?
1: Oh, I think you hit all the major points. Yeah, I love it. Cool.
0: Well, that was uh, exactly kind of how I envisioned Idea Prop to be. Um, so uh, we got together and you know didn't have any idea how this topic was going to kind of uh, transpire, and we came out with three or four different ideas just from talking and kind of formulated a little bit of a plan that we could help try and make. Um, just to see what would happen if debt was freezing. So um, I have to say a wonderful thank you to Megan. I thought you were fantastic. Uh, I couldn't envision a better um, better co-creator for this segment. So thank you for being on the show and I, I think we're gonna we're gonna really make some people think and wonder once they hear this episode.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Mike. This was so much fun. I really appreciate it.
0: Good. Um, so guys, as, as usual, we'll definitely put in um, Megan's notes about her, uh, her project from the beginning. We'll add that into the description and then you can always reach out to us at, uh, at Ideaprov if you want to be on the show or add your comments and uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can also check out the website at at any point in time. And uh, so drop us a line, ideaprob at gmail.com. Let us know of an episode that you want to hear or uh, any type of topics that you want to go over. And we'd love to have you. So stay tuned for uh, a little bit later and you'll hear the Invention of the Week. Hey, everyone, welcome to another Invention of the Week. Um, I wanted to share this little um, interesting nanomaterial robot that I found um, with you from an environmental perspective. So all of us can remember about 10 years ago BP ended up spilling 168 million gallons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico, ravaged and completely tore up the environment. And the students at NC State came up with this robot over the last 10 years to suck up oil and not hurt the environment at the same time. So this robot that you can see here, and I'll make sure to put a a link in it for those that are just listening, um, is a solar powered robot. It looks like a similar to an old school 1950s top that that kids used to play with. And what it does is it sucks up all the oil completely solar powered by the way, sucks up all the oil and puts it into like the sponge-like material. The sponge-like material is actually made up of leaves and, and other environmental materials. So it doesn't rely on fossil fuels for that sponge to be able to suck it up. Previously, in order to clean up oil spills, they would just have to pretty much burn the oil off the top. So this is a great way to not have to do that and be a lot more friendly to the environment in the neighboring area. Each particular robot can hold about 20 gallons of oil and it can also do, I guess, the, uh, the membrane that holds the, the leaves and the oil can be redeployed about 180 times before it needs to be changed. So I thought this was a really interesting um, tool that could be used because these oil spills and whatnot are still happening on a regular basis. There was one in Russia that was 100,000 gallons of diesel fuel Uh, metric tons of diesel fuel that was uh, dispersed in the Arctic. So I think this is something that uh, we could all use and definitely helps from all standpoints. So leave your thoughts and your comments um, on our website in relation to the episode. And then you can also interact with us at at ideaprov at any one of the social handles. Um, Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time.